0: Welcome back, people. Your estimable host, Jose Nino, is here bringing you another fantastic episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm here again with Keith Preston of Attack the System. Before we kick off our discussion, Keith, tell my audience, especially the new listeners, more about yourself. Well, I'm someone
1: that's it's been around, uh, I guess, what could be called dissident politics in the United States for about 35 years. Uh, and I've been in and out of a lot of different movements and tendencies along the way. Uh, I, years ago, I started out by working with the radical left. And I've also worked with libertarians, with the alt-right, with paleo-conservatives, um, with uh, a lot of other factions. Uh, I can actually consider myself to be an anarchist. And I have my own approach to that. If you want to know more about it, you can go to uh, our group's website at attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds, attackthesystem.com. I've also published about uh, half a dozen or so books on various themes related to political philosophy and geopolitics and things of that nature. I've written quite a few essays and articles. Uh, Some have been published in anthologies uh, put out by other people. Uh, So I've done quite a bit of writing and and, uh, YouTubing and and blogging over the years, as well as uh, speaking at uh, academic conferences and things of that nature.
0: Great stuff. I will link to Keith's website at the show notes after the show. Okay, let's talk about some cultural stuff first, because uh, there's that one controversy that caught my attention about the entire uproar surrounding the country music star. um, Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town Single, where he uh, pretty much, like, if you listen to the lyrics, it was a pro-Second Amendment song that criticized the Black Lives Matter rioting and looting that took place throughout 2020, and how that kind of stuff would not have flown in a more like red, if you will, rural or small-town jurisdiction in the U.S. And naturally, the media lost its mind over this. What do you make of this entire controversy? Do you see this as just another expansion of the culture war in the music space, into the music space? Well, there was
1: always a culture war in the music space. You know, a 100 years ago, when jazz came along, there were a lot of people who criticized jazz, saying it was going to lead young people into a uh, a world of juvenile delinquency or or something like that. So, uh, music as a as a culture war uh, fixation is a longstanding tradition. But what I find interesting though about the the Jason Aldean controversy is, and I had never even heard of Jason Aldean until this song came along, is that it, it used to be that. It would frequently be conservatives of different types who were criticizing the music industry for promoting things they consider contrary to their own values or politics or or things of that nature. But I find it interesting that in more recent years, you started to see the liberal side uh, engaging in that kind of thing. Uh, I remember way back in the mid 1980s, there was a group called the Parents Music Resource Center and they were leading the charge against the music industry for having artists that would have songs where the lyrics are believed to promote, say, drug use or or violence or the occult or, or sexual promiscuity or something like that. And you don't really hear as much about that nowadays. Instead, you, know, you hear more people complaining about uh music or other forms of entertainment that are not politically correct. And this is obviously an example. You know, clearly there clearly that um uh a song is designed to appeal first to country music fans, uh, many of whom are live in small towns and places like that. And it has reflects a, a point of view that's like, well, you know, we can use our Second Amendment rights to defend our communities against rioters or whatever. That's the the, the general message that's being conveyed. And of course, the other side of the political spectrum or cultural spectrum that comes along and says, well, this is actually racist. They're advocating vigilantism against black people or something like that. So uh, it's interesting how the cultural roles have shifted in many ways, And not just with music, but with a lot of other things.
0: I'm not sure how well-versed you are in the country music scene, because I've seen you post a good deal of heavy metal content on Facebook and other social media. Is it true that the more mainstream country stars, like the big stars, are more on the conservative side while the smaller up-and-comer types tend to be more uh, culturally leftist and liberal? Well, I think
1: that probably a lot of older country performers were somewhat conservative because you know they were older i mean they would have been conservative by contemporary standards simply because of it's a generation of thing i don't think that's universally the case like willie nelson for example he's probably the oldest country performer there is that's still performing and he's fairly liberal about a lot of things uh, Merle Haggard, he was always thought of as, as being a, a conservative because he had that taunt that song, "Okie from Muskogee, that was sort of, uh, making fun of the hippie counterculture of the sixties student protesters from that time period. Although he later said it was actually just intended as a parody. You know, it wasn't really meant to be a political message. But I do think it's true, though, that the younger generation of country performers probably are more quote unquote liberal. Uh, and that reflects generational and cultural changes. But also increasingly, country music is simply manufactured. It's simply a product. Older country performers had greater roots in the kind of cultural traditions that they s- seemingly represented as performers, where now nowadays it's more the case that country musicians are really just pop musicians. And a lot of them are entirely manufactured. For example, Jason Aldean himself doesn't come from a small town. The town he's from actually has about 250,000 people, which is is small compared to L.A. or New York. But it's not really a small town in in the proper sense. Um, And one thing, though, that's interesting about the, the music industry is that over time, rock music has declined in popularity to some degree uh, among younger people, like if you go to a rock yeah, concert big time. today, yeah, if you go to a rock concert today, it's mostly middle aged people. You know, it's getting to be old people's music. Uh, what's popular now among young people is electronic music and and hip hop and these uh, uh, female singers like uh, Billie Eilish or somebody like that, and or country pop. I, I think that a lot of the people that were into rock music in the past are now more into this kind of country-fied countryfied pop music that you have in fact i i joked to someone i had never heard that small town song by jason aldean until it started getting so much publicity and i, I actually listened to it and i was like well this sounds kind of like a a hairband power ballad from like the late 80s or something you know it sounds like uh la guns or something like that you know it's uh although it has a more country-fied flavor to it but it's it sounds very similar in that way. And somebody I know who's in the music industry actually told me that that's actually been a trend where a lot of people who were session musicians and producers and engineers in the Los Angeles area, say in the, in the 80s, when that style of music, that hairband music was a thing, a lot of those eventually went to Nashville and, and started working on country projects. So a lot of the same people are behind contemporary country pop that were behind a lot of that 80s era pop metal, you know, so there's not really much, you know, there's a straight line between Poison and and Jason
0: Aldean. Interesting. Yeah. That's, a, that's pretty fascinating. It really is. Yeah. Actually, do you think this is a trend that's going to continue to, to like manifest itself? Like where a lot of like older rock trends will, will kind of like manifest themselves in other music genres. Yeah. Well, that's just how music evolves
1: over time. You know the, the style of music that the first generation of rock stars played. You know Elvis Presley, Jerry Lewis, Little Richard. That style of music itself is is not particularly popular now, and uh, hasn't been for quite some time. But you do see little traces of it in different types of music here and there. And I think that's true of uh, in any style of music. Like I hear music all the time. I'll be you know in a bar or a restaurant or some somewhere where there's music on and I'll hear uh, an old classic rock song from, say, the 70s uh, that's been remixed and it has kind of a hip-hop beat behind it or something like that. Um, yeah, that's very common. So there's no such thing as original music. I mean, music always borrows from what came before. Even, even the most original musical artists have influences. They have things that they learned music from. So there's not really such thing as being completely original.
0: Uh, yeah, that's true. Very much so. Now to shift gears to another facet of the culture war, there's been all these boycotts, like against like Bud Light and Target, that seem to be having somewhat of an impact due to just the fact that there have been a growing number of disaffected conservatives and other right wing individuals that have been fed up with the wokeification of several of these companies, what do you make of these boycotts? Do you think they'll be effective in the long term or are they just like a marginal victory that like the conservative movement is able to score in the short term, but in the medium to long term, the liberal left is able to like continue to move along its agenda, albeit with some road bumps here and there? Well, boycotts generally are not very effective.
1: It's, I mean, regardless of what the issue is, uh, it's rare that a boycott is extremely, uh, effective in terms of achieving goals. Of all the projects like that that have ever been attempted, there have been a lot more failed boycotts than, than those that were successful. I tend to think that the boycott, for example, the one you mentioned, the boycott of Bud Light over the Dylan Mulvaney issue, I suspect that's just going to be a seasonal fad. I'm sure that will pass over time. You know, next year it'll be something else and everybody will have forgotten about that. That that's, seems to be how these things go. They just kind of flare up for a moment and then they pass. You know, I, I don't see Bud Light going out of business over this or anything like that. You know, like I said, there have been plenty of efforts to do that kind of thing in the past, but from all different kinds of political directions, Uh whenever there's a strike, uh, organized labor will try to initiate a boycott against a particular company that's, that someone is striking against. Years ago, some conservative organizations were trying to boycott. Um, I think it was Walmart because they made a donation to a gay rights group or something like that. Yeah, you know, Things like that rarely are very durable over time.
0: What makes boycotts ineffective in your view? And what do you believe is actually more effective in generating political change? Well, boycotts are ineffective because
1: so many people have to participate and be committed to it to make it work. Take, for example, uh, there was one effort some years ago by the left to boycott Chicken Filet because I believe the story was they opposed gay marriage or something like that. Uh, you know, most people who go to Chick-fil-A care less about politics generally. Most people are not that politically motivated. They're not that committed to any particular crusade or cause that they're going to stop using products that they would otherwise want or need because it's simply uh, a matter of commitment to the cause. Uh, As an illustration, like when the Chick-fil-A boycott was going on, well, there were uh, two women that actually lived in my apartment complex at the time that were lesbians, and they were married to each other. Uh, And I used to see them coming in all the time, Carrying Chick-fil-A bags. Uh, and and it's so it's, you know, it's it's not something that inspires that many people. You know, most people just don't think that uh boycotting products is that important. It, it, for, a lot of people don't think it's going to be successful anyway, and it's usually not, but it's just not that important to that many people. Most people are not ideologically driven to the point that they're gonna participate in things like that. I mean, a rare exception is something like um. In the South, in the 50s and 60s, you had the civil rights boycotts of segregated businesses. Uh, That was something that uh, a lot of people uh, experienced and observed in their day-to-day life and were committed to. But that's extremely rare. That's That's the exception rather than the rule. As far as what kind of political change is effective, number one, there's strength in numbers. I think you have to have lots of people on your side, number one. I think that's important. You also have to have uh, a very well-organized group that is extremely committed to the particular cause. In fact, groups that are otherwise fairly small can, can exercise influence beyond their reach if they are uh, among themselves very uh, insular and tight-knit and committed to whatever objectives they're trying to pursue. But it's really just a matter of having committed organizers and leaders on one hand and a a vanguard of committed activists and that is in turn able to win the sympathy of large numbers of people to where you achieve uh, some sort of cultural majority. And then whatever it is you're trying to promote becomes a shared cultural consensus. And that's, of course, extremely hard to do. That's why most causes fail.
0: Do you believe that these causes also need significant elite or at least aspiring elite buy-in in order to be successful? Well, that doesn't hurt. What typically happens is one of two things. Elites
1: can create causes of their own. I mean, you can have members of the elite that are usually, say, a faction of the elite. And this typically happens when you have wide divisions in the ruling class, which we actually do now in our society, and that's one of the reasons why we see all this culture war stuff going on. But if you have a particular faction of elites that wishes to generate constituents for themselves, uh, often they will go out and try to adopt or promote some particular cause. Sometimes it will involve co-optation of something that's already happening. Sometimes they'll try to actually engineer and create a movement um, in and of themselves. A, an example would be uh, some years ago when the Tea Parties came along uh, as a as a conservative movement. That movement began uh, as a somewhat grassroots movement, but it was quickly uh, co-opted. It was picked up on by these, uh, well funded Republican oriented political groups like Freedom Works and things like that. Uh, something similar happened with Occupy Wall Street. Well, Occupy Wall Street was going on at roughly the same time. And there was a move by a lot of corporate interest to get in on what Occupy Wall Street was doing and try to co-opt it and bend it in their particular direction. In fact, there's an interesting book about that by by, um, by Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for president now. There's a book called Woke Capital, I believe is what it's called, that uh, maybe Woke Incorporated or something. I forget the title, but the book itself is good. It actually talks about how this happened about how Occupy Wall Street was co-opted by a lot of corporate interests. And uh, there's a Marxist uh, commentator named Caleb but He's actually written about this as well from the other end of the political spectrum. That happens quite a bit. Uh, a, lot, a lot of movements are either created or co-opted by elites. I saw this happen when I was a kid. I grew up in evangelical circles and I saw the religious right as it came to be known, being created as a constituent group by the Republican Party. You had um, Republican Party elites uh, and members of the donor class coming in and getting together with all these evangelical pastors and saying, yeah, you know, we're going to help you build a movement of your own. You're going to be our constituents
0: and, and things of that nature. I see. Broadly speaking, when you look at the level of polarization in the U.S., it seems pretty much inevitable that the culture wars will persist for some time. Where do you think are going to be like the next venues or like institutions that the culture wars are going to like seep into, and do you think that the culture wars will thaw out a bit, or do you see them just intensifying as time goes on? Uh, so there's, that's really two questions where what
1: what's the next front going to be and how durable of the culture war is going to be. Uh, as for the second part of that, I think it's going to last for a while. Yeah. Um, because I don't see any peace agreement coming about when it comes to the culture wars. Uh, in many ways, it's kind of like a, re, a sectarian religious conflict, you know, on one hand, on the, on the red tribe, you have people that tend to be more oriented towards, um, what used to be called the American civil religion what the, the sociologist, uh, Robert Bellah called, uh, the American civil religion, uh, you know, which veneration of the founding fathers and things like that, as well as just more traditional religion, generally, you know, Protestant or Catholic, whatever. Uh, and then on the other side of the spectrum. You have people, uh, that were more products historically of the enlightenment religion of, of progress and reason and human perfectibility. And then that blends with more liberal religion, progressive Christianity. And then all of that has developed into this woke cultural phenomena now. And I, I don't see any reconciliation there or any, any kind of peace agreement at all. So I, in some form, I think these conflicts will go on for quite a while in the, as far as the institutional framework. Um, uh, it's interesting how that unfolds. Like I know a few years ago we were hearing quite a bit about Black Lives Matter and Antifa and that kind of thing. But that seems to have been uh eclipsed now by the transgender uh issue. That seems to be like the real issue now, uh that as far as anything that's like the culture war hot button. Um and the future, uh it could be any number of things. I I, I think that What's going to happen is you're going to start to see more fracturing within institutions that were previously considered bastions of conservatism. For instance, in the military, I think in the military, people think of the military as being conservative, but I think increasingly in the military, we're seeing this. Culture war conflict creeping into into that uh, milieu, and I think that's going to be a source of uh, conflict over you know on an ongoing basis. Also in religion, and even in some of the more uh, traditionally conservative religious denominations, we're starting to see some of these kinds of conflicts. And a lot of that, I think, is generational. It's like what we were talking about earlier about country music and things like that. I think that that seems to be an issue as well. Uh, So I I think that um, as far as the issues, you know, what the biggest culture war issues of the future are going to be, it's hard to say. You know, I I think that there's probably going to be a lot of things that emerge in the future that aren't really on the radar quite as much now. For instance, I think polyamory or there is a a locality in uh, one of the northeastern states, Massachusetts or, or, connecticut or one of those where they've actually more or less uh formalized polyamory basically they've legalized polygamy uh as a as a you know as a state recognized marital relationship only it's just called polyamory but i think probably that may be a culture war front in the future yeah so there's there's always new things that come up like like uh you know 15 years ago it was gay marriage everybody was talking about gay marriage and at least for now the the pro gay marriage side seems to have won that and nowadays that seems almost quaint you know nowadays it's more the the transgender and gender affirming care and uh so that seems to be you know what the hot button issues are now so who knows what it could be in the future
0: i've seen this take Being used in various media outlets, both foreign and domestic. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, if I'm not mistaken, how one way to unify an otherwise culture war torn nation like the US is to find like a common enemy, in this case, a geopolitical foe such as China. Do you believe that elites will try to? Use that foreign boogeyman as a way to unite the country? And if they do, do you think that such an endeavor would be successful in ending the quote unquote culture wars? Uh, well, in a couple of words, no, and no. And, and here's why the elites
1: are divided among themselves, the, the elites are, are fractured in terms of who they think the greatest geopolitical rivalry is. The, if you look at the history of American politics, American politics has always been driven by intra-elite conflict, and you know, early on, of course, it was between the North and the South, between the Northern merchant and banker classes on one hand and the Southern planter classes on the other hand. After the uh, South was defeated in the Civil War, that, of course, left the North with the upper hand for uh, a generation or two, and then you had the North-South reconciliation uh, around the beginning of the 20th century and ever ever since then though I think the real conflict has been between uh, the traditional northeastern establishment which is the, um, the the old money elite the, the, the financial elite the mercantile elite and a lot of that is the, the the old uh families from the uh, industrial revolution era like the Rockefellers and all of that that faction of the ruling class on one hand has always been in conflict with the emerging ruling class from the West and the Midwest and the Southwest, uh, Sunbelt, you know, the the elites from the Sunbelt, uh, from the Midwest, your more Chamber of Commerce types, your National Association of Manufacturers type at one point. And this was really, I think, something that's defined, American politics since at least the end of World War II. And I think really going back further than that, probably going back at least a hundred years or so. And right now that division has is readily apparent. The uh, Northeastern establishment is very much behind the Democrats. They align uh, themselves with the. Uh, the new wave of Wall Street financiers, you know, the hedge fund managers, as well as Silicon Valley and these big tech elites and all of that. That's, that's, the, you know, that's what's behind the Democratic Party, along with the civilian intelligence services and all of that, and then the media. And then the other section of the ruling class that's spread out through the, the you know, the Midwest, and the South, the Southwest, and all of that. That tends to be the lower levels of, of, of the elite. They tend to be more like the small to medium business class interest, the more, you know, what the Marxists call the petty bourgeoisie and that kind of thing. And I think within these different, uh, sectors of the elite, they, they have different opinions as to who their enemies are. The Northeastern establishment are essentially Europhiles or Anglophiles. They see themselves as the equivalent of the European royalty and they feel a close connection to Europe. Whereas the uh the more uh, the, the Sunbelt sectors of the elite are, are far less connected to that in a cultural level. Uh and that when it comes to geopolitical interest, I think the the, the Northeastern establishment tends to be very oriented towards liberal internationalism. They're a lot more in favor of, say, the UN of multilateralism. Yeah, that's one reason why they're so anti-Russian now. They see Russia as violating the, the tenets of the, uh, international liberal order. Whereas the, uh, I think that with the growth of China and the fact that China's become such a major competitor uh, economically, a lot of the kinds of interests that you see in the other parts of the country, you know, these are people who own businesses that are, that see China as a competitor. That's also true, I think, when it comes to uh, to some degree with Latin America, you know, because of uh, NAFTA, The uh, economy and uh, and some other trade agreements. The economies of the United States and some of the Latin American countries have become increasingly integrated, and you're starting to see um, a lot of competitiveness there. That is, you know, that's those some of these sectors of the elite see as problematic. So, uh, and I think that is reflective in politics. Like I've been following what the geopolitical stances are of different people who want to run for president, and. Of course, the, the, the Democratic Party line, you know, Robert F. Kennedy is kind of a maverick, but the, the general Democratic Party line is, you know, Russia is the bad guys. You know, those are the ones we want to look out for. Whereas on the Republican side, I'm hearing more, uh, less about Russia. You know, more people say, who cares about Russia? What about China? What about, uh, Mexico? What about Iran? Uh, And there are different interests behind each one of those that that see these particular states as the enemy for different reasons. Uh, So there's no real consensus, I think, among the elites as to who the the real enemy is. And instead, I think the the different factions of the elite are trying to rally their various uh, constituents against this or that enemy. Uh, but there, but there's there's a there's a lack of a general consensus. We're we're seeing uh, a real fragmentation among elites at this point. So as far as you know, how they're going to unify the country, I don't. You know, they're not going to unify the country because they're not uni- united among themselves. If anything, I think the polarization and fragmentation is going to continue to get wider.
0: Yeah, it's actually a really good point. And yeah, there's like um, you kind of see the domestic culture war. Almost extrapolated to the foreign policy level where like Russia is seen as like some like reactionary white supremacist state that has to be like condemned and attacked in whichever way. Whereas uh, China, um, generally speaking for many of these progressive elites, they see it um, in a much more neutral way, though I have been seeing some woke language. uh, Creep into some anti China discourse when it comes to the Uyghurs and Chinese like uh, domination of certain minority groups within their like uh, framing them as colonizers. But it seems to be more among certain anti CCP dissidents like in the US that have adopted some of that woke language. And it is very peculiar how some of these trends that we see at the domestic level. Are applied to the international level as well.
1: Yeah, well, on the liberal side of the spectrum, you know, nowadays Putin is more or less equated with Hitler. You know, he's the guy that's trying to take over the world. He wants to invade everybody. Uh, and I think that w- what you're saying is absolutely correct. Putin is is viewed as, uh, or Russia is viewed as, a reactionary conservative you know, white racist regime that uh, doesn't recognize gay marriage or whatever. Uh, so that makes them the villain in the eyes of the of the progressives. Because the the Chinese are still ruled by the Communist Party, that makes them uh, makes it a lot easy to villainize them in the eyes of conservatives. So I think that's an important um, distinction there. Yeah, there, there there's a range of opinions about China on the U.S. left there are some people who will take the position, when you, you mentioned the woke issues, uh, there are some people who take the position that any criticism of China is basically racist against Chinese people. And then you have other people who actually, on the left, on the far left, who praise China, who say, no, China is still a great socialist country. And then there's another sector of the left that says that well, no, actually, uh, China is a fascist regime too, you know, just like Russia because they're oppressing the Uyghurs or, or, or whomever. So there's a, a, a lot of division, I think, on the, on the, that side of the spectrum when it comes to China. And I think a lot of it tends to be what sectors of, of the left or the liberal and left opinion you're dealing with.
0: Oh, it's actually funny because there's somewhat of a horseshoe uh, with the anti-fascist left that talks about China that way because you'll see people like Gordon Chang and some other more conservative, neoconservative types use those same type of arguments. It's it's kind of interesting how th- those two intersect, but it's also from a historical standpoint, you can kind of see some lineage of that because you had like the anti-Stalinist left and a lot of uh, Trotskyites that turned into neoconservatives that – ended up like having more malleable political affiliations over time. Yeah, well I've seen uh some
1: conservative, you know, sectors, often the ones that have neocon influences. I've seen them refer to China as a fascist regime. I've seen them refer to the Antifa as fascists. You know, just like I've heard a lot of actual Stalinists, like literal Stalinists, also refer to Antifa as fascists because there's actually a um, a, a conflict on the left, on the far left between the so-called tankies, the marxist leninists and then the Antifa types who tend to be more like anarchists or uh, socialists or something like that. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's very reminiscent of the World War II era on the far left when the, the Stalinists used to call all the, the rest of the left fascists. Like they'd say social democrats or social fascists, anarchists or anarcho-fascists. Trotskyites or Trotskyite fascists, and then the Trotskyites would turn around and do the same thing. They'd say the that the the Stalinist regime was actually fascist.
0: Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. Okay, this this is a good segue into geopolitical affairs. Outside of that whole mutiny that Evgeny Pogoshin, the so-called head of the Wagner private military company, launched against russia which ultimately fizzled out after the belarusian leader alexander lukashenko stepped in to broker an agreement between wagner and the russian government there really hasn't been anything big going on in that conflict what do you make of the russo-ukrainian conflict thus far it's one thing about that particular war
1: is that it's really hard to get accurate information on what's going on. If you, you obviously you have to g- get information from a wide range of sources mm-hmm. to try to piece together what the actual story is. Uh, you know, you if you uh, watch American mainstream American media or listen to what the American government is claiming. Of course, they insist that uh, Russia is losing the war and Ukraine is going to win. Uh, if you listen to uh, any media that's pro-Russian, you know, Russia Today or any, anything that's aligned with Russia, the, it's the opposite position that uh, Russia is winning. I think that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think Russia is actually performing better in the war than what the mainstream American media would, is claiming. Uh, at the same time, they're not as performing as well as the pro-Russian media uh, from uh, various international sources or dissident sources within the United States are claiming either. Uh, as to what's going to happen, as to what's the outcome of that war is going to be, it, it remains to be seen. You know, is it is it something that's going to drag on for years? Is there going to be a settlement eventually? When the settlement comes, what's it going to be? Uh, you know, where's the final mo- border going to be drawn? How long is that going to take? To what degree is the war going to escalate? I lean towards the view that probably what will happen there, the eventual outcome, is that Ukraine is just going to be the new Iron Curtain. As to where the curtain itself is going to be drawn, I'm not sure. It could be central to eastern Ukraine. It could be Crimea. It could be the Russian border. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how well Ukraine is going to come out in the long run. But I do think Ukraine is essentially going to be the new Germany. It's going to be the new Iron Curtain. Um, and the details of it are still up in the air. But that seems to be the most probable outcome.
0: Do you see a North slash South Korea scenario or you you tend to be more of the view it's iron curtain?
1: Well, it could be either one. I think that part of Ukraine will probably be ceded to Russia, even if not formally annexed by Russia. It'll be a Russian satellite. Uh, I don't think that it's very likely that Russia is going to get pushed all the way back to the Russian border, that Ukraine is going to have the same border it once did, It's quite possible that the Ukraine is simply going to be split somehow, you know, exactly what the split's going to be. I don't know. But uh, most likely there will be uh, a, a stalemate. The two sides will probably fight to a stalemate. There'll probably be some negotiated settlement. Of course, increasingly, I'm hearing talk about bringing Ukraine into NATO and you know, they can't. It's against the rules of NATO for Ukraine to join NATO now because a, a country that has active border disputes can't join NATO. But I think that once this, a stalemate comes, once some kind of formal or informal settlement comes, I suspect there will be some way that's found to incorporate Ukraine into NATO. So NATO will be like West Germany. I mean, uh, West Ukraine will be like west germany in the cold war it'll be a nato protectorate and then the other side uh in east ukraine you know wherever the border is drawn that'll be like what the warsaw pact was uh during the cold war that'll be the russian side and it's not that dissimilar to what happened in north and south korea um and and, and, you know the united south korea has essentially been an american protectorate for the past 75 years or whatever it is and uh North Korea, for all practical purposes, has been a, 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 a Russian, a Soviet, and then Chinese satellite uh, for most of that time as well. Uh, so you, you know, the, the, either one works as an analogy because they're essentially the same type of situation.
0: Do you lend much credence to those rumors of Poland... Lithuania and some Baltic states trying to create a modernized form of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth by trying to step in and create like a sphere of influence or just outright annex part of Western Ukraine?
1: Well, those countries are extremely hawkish on the Ukraine war. Of all the NATO member countries, those countries are the ones that are most pro, you know, let's beat back the Russians. I mean, yeah, and that's understandable given their history. And, they they are closer to the American and English position. You know, the, the, the United States and the United Kingdom and then the Baltic States and Poland, they're the countries in NATO that are the most hawkish on what's going on in Ukraine, whereas the, the continental European countries, western European countries tend to be a little more, I wouldn't say dovish, but comparatively less hawkish but yeah i mean i'm certain that those countries see this as a means of uh expanding their own influence uh you know they they want to expand their own influence regionally within nato within the european union certainly they see russia as their main geopolitical rivalry uh, rival uh, in a way i think that the western european countries don't yeah you know, i i think that germany and and france and, and italy and some of those countries are more Orienting towards the idea, well, you know, we, we can just coexist with Russia and just keep them at bay as long as they just stay over there. But because these other countries are closer to the Russian border, because, you know, the Baltic states were once actually part of the Soviet Union, they were forcibly annexed by the Soviet Union. Because uh, of Poland's history uh, with Russia, yeah, I mean, they, I think for understandable reasons, have a very um, uh, averse, a strong aversion to Russia and are therefore trying to strengthen their own position and process. Yeah, no doubt.
0: Do you see China ever stepping into this conflict through the provision of military aid or some massive injection of economic aid? Or will it remain ostensibly neutral? Well, China
1: is too self-interested to really put themselves out for Russia in any serious way. I mean, they would have to see it as to greatly to their advantage to get involved in this um, From what I have seen, on one hand, the Chinese have seen this as an opportunity to strengthen their relationship with Russia, and also in many ways to gain the upper hand in that relationship. Because of the sanctions that have been put on Russia, because they got thrown off the system and all of that, Russia has become more dependent on China economically. And China, I think, sees that as an opportunity to really get the upper hand as far as being the leadership of the you know, the BRICS and the, the Asian, you know, any alliances that exist in the Asian world. I don't think the Chinese are reckless enough to actually get involved in, in the war on Russia's behalf, except for on a very peripheral level. In fact, I think just the opposite seems to be happening. I think behind the scenes, they seem to be leaning on the Russians to rein it in a little bit. Now, I think they, they don't want the war to expand or, or escalate. So I think that any, any involvement they would have would be very limited. In fact, China seems to be going in the opposite direction. They seem to be trying to broker peace agreements between various warring parties in Asia because they, you know, they, they they have their belt road initiative and all of that. They want to be the masters of a vast, uh, Eurasian trading bloc. And you can't have that if there's wars going on everywhere. And I think that's why they stepped in in the Middle East to some degree and tried to broker peace agreements between all these different parties that are fighting each other, the Saudis and the Iranians and even even Palestinians. I think they, they've gotten behind it recently.
0: Curiously. Prior to the war, China had pretty solid relations with Ukraine, too, and I think they've even have considered it as a potential like, member for the Belt and Road Initiative. So they do have like, a vested interest of, as you mentioned before, Keith, to maintain peace in, uh, across like the Eurasian landmass.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't think they really want to take sides in a lot of these geopolitical conflicts. You see them doing that everywhere. You see them more or less trying to be neutral trading partners uh, in the Middle East, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. You see them trying to stay out of the conflicts between Russia and Ukraine, uh, you know, to a large degree. They're trying to uh, engage with Israel and the Palestinians at the same time. You know, they have a a lengthy history of conflict with India, but they're also, you know, trying to maintain stable trade relations with India so yeah that that's that's china's strategy. China's geopolitical strategy is to achieve trade dominance, not military dominance i think I think what they do is they the Chinese I think, look at what the United States has done during the time that the United States has been the dominant world power, and they say, "Okay, what did the Americans do wrong well the one the first thing was they tried to maintain military dominance to an excessive degree that they overreached and it's come back to bite them and i think they're very cautious about avoiding that you know there hasn't been a lot of effort by the chinese to put military bases all over the world instead it's been more about trying to establish trade dominance all over the world
0: yep i recently Listen to an interview with John Mearsheimer regarding China. He argued that he thinks that the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, especially the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he thinks that it may actually have, uh, will prevent China from launching an invasion of Taiwan in the next decade. His reasoning, if I recall correctly, was that because of the, amount of support the West has given to Ukraine and you add in like the geographical particularities of Taiwan due to like the fact that the, the Chinese would be compelled to conduct an amphibious assault on it owing to the fact that it's an island. He thinks these factors and just like the overall like intelligence that the West is able to provide to Taiwan and the fact that it's a pretty modern, has a pretty modern military, it'll make the, invasion of taiwan by china in the near future a, a prohibitive type of venture that could drag out into a really nasty conflict how much do you believe that theory do you think there is something credible to it well the, as far
1: as the idea of china actually directly invading and annexing taiwan the way uh, russia has tried to do to ukraine i think that is while not impossible i i think it's unlikely the chinese regime seems to be more calculating than that and i think that they're more likely to feel like that is a that would be overreach you know that that would be i, I think if think if they look at you know like you were saying if they look at what russia's experience was with Ukraine and if they look at what America's experience was with say Iraq or, or Afghanistan I think the Chinese leadership is likely to look at those and say well do we want to do we want to do that do we want to put ourselves in that kind of situation uh, particularly when it leads uh potentially to a direct confrontation with the Americans uh, you know in the Pacific you know China is not a major naval power. They don't have a history of being a major power. Uh, in fact, they've always had this issue where they're constrained by what in China they call the first island chain, which is just all the, the chain of island countries you know in the Pacific, outside of China, Japan, and, and Taiwan, and, and Singapore, and all of that. Um, so I, I think that China is probably going to be very hesitant to get into something like that. Although, you know, Political leaders go off and, and do crazy things that don't really seem rational at times like, uh, you know, like, like the, I would say that about the invasion of of uh, Ukraine by, by by Russia, I probably would have predicted before that that Russia was probably smarter than that, that they go and get bogged down and something like that. But no, they weren't. Uh, and of course, we see that the United States has done that kind of thing uh, repeatedly. So it could be that, you know, the Chinese could overreach and they could try to make a move on Taiwan. But I think their, their real strategy is probably to try to slowly and gradually Come to dominate Taiwan like they're doing with Hong Kong now there are differences there, you know there are geopolitical differences and and uh, some legal differences and, and other things when it, as when you compare Taiwan and Hong Kong. but what China's basically done in Hong Kong is just slowly come to dominate Hong Kong by default rather than say sending out the troops and and that kind of thing um, and I suspect that that's probably their long term strategy for Taiwan. they probably look at it like a we can come to dominate trade and the economic life and eventually the military life of East Asia, and Taiwan will be under our thumb by default. You know, it's they'll be taking orders from us, you know, irrespective of what the the formal arrangements are. If I were an advisor to Xi Jinping, that's, that's the advice I would give. I would say, well, if you really want Taiwan back, that's how to do it, you know, to get to the point where you can, dominate taiwan informally irrespective of you know whether they're you know independent or not independent you know whatever the legalities are formalities are you know what matters is who holds the upper hand in terms of economic and military power
0: there's been talk about like a so-called pivot to china where like since hillary clinton made that announcement like in 2010 2011 forget what year but where The main focus of U.S. foreign policy would be towards focusing more on containing China's geopolitical and geoeconomic ambitions in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, it appears that the U.S. is really committed to seeing this proxy war in Ukraine through. So do you believe that pivot to Asia will ever fully manifest itself? Or is the U.S. going to pursue a dual containment strategy against two nuclear powers?
1: Well, I think it's to a large degree the latter. Uh, I think they're trying to contain Russia with aid to Ukraine uh, with the goal of using aid using, uh, Ukraine as simply a proxy force against Russia. And if if, if all else fails, then just simply using Ukraine as a, as a buffer state between uh, NATO and Russia, uh, the, the strategy of containment when it comes to China is somewhat similar, but I think it's a little less uh, aggressive. It's more oriented towards uh, becoming more hawkish on trade rather than on military relations. Uh, for example, there's actually been more continuity between the Biden administration and the Trump administration when it comes to China policy than what a lot of people would think like a lot of people think well you know the the republicans are, are uh, hawkish on china the democrats are hawkish on russia uh which is actually more continuity between the two uh when it comes to these one in what or, ways just curious well for example when it comes to russia the, the trump administration actually uh unilaterally abrogated the inf treaty uh that was a treaty that was established between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev back in 1987, and under the Trump administration, the United States simply said, "No, we're out of this." Uh, so that was, a, you know, a rather hawkish move. At the same time, during the Trump administration, policies involving tariffs and, and trade policy and that kind of thing tended to be more uh, reflective of a trade hawk perspective. Biden has actually maintained a lot of that. Biden has not really loosened up much of that. And a lot of the people that Biden has appointed to, you know, manage trade between the United States and China are fairly hawkish in, in their, you know, views of what the trade relationship between the two countries ought to be. I know there's this one woman that I think is actually a Taiwanese American that, that Biden appointed. I can't remember her name, but he appointed her to a a, a significant position, you know, in the federal government regarding trade policy. Yeah, and she's very, you know, hawkish when it comes to trade policy with uh with China. So there's actually more continuity there than one might think. Although the rhetoric though, the rhetoric between the two sides is much different. And that a lot of that reflects these divisions in the ruling class I was talking about. Uh and it reflects the you know, what which they think should be the greater priority and also what they're trying to use to rally constituents and things like that
0: yeah that seems about right if you ask me there there definitely is more continuity in certain respects on the russia China containment strategy and i'd I'd even add too that when you look at some of the legislation in the trump era polarization aside from, like, the condemnation of, like, the Hong Kong crackdown or the condemnation of the Uyghurs, both parties, like, unanimously voted in favor of those resolutions. The only person that deviated, I think, was the Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey. And that's what's, like, prompted some of these journalists, like, in the Financial Times, like, I think it's, like, John Anganash or something like that uh, of the Financial Times. There's an Indian guy saying, like, this is, like, an opportunity for, like, us elites to try to like contain the polarization and unite against a common foe in china as crazy as that sounds
1: yeah well i I don't think that that's going to work in domestic american politics i mean um, americans really just don't care about foreign policy uh if you look at public opinion polls when it comes to issues like during an election year, like what are the issues that are going to shape your voting preferences and things like that. Foreign policy is almost way down on the list. The one exception was in the aftermath of 9-11. You had a lot of people that were worried about terrorism because they see it as an immediate personal threat. But for the most part, Americans just don't care about foreign policy. Uh, Nowadays, poll after poll after poll shows that the the rising and rising cost of living, rising cost of housing, Cost of health care, student loan debt, you know, financial issues, bread and butter issues. That's what drives American politics. And then, as far as the culture war, you know, most Americans are not really hardcore blue drivers or hardcore red drivers. But as I said earlier, when we were talking about activism, when you have a group that may be a minority but it's super committed to whatever it is they're doing, that gives them a longer reach than they than their numbers, their actual numbers. Uh, And that gives them a louder voice. Uh, And so that's what we're seeing, I think, with the culture wars. We're seeing, you know, a militant minority of the blue tribe, a militant minority of the red tribe that are very vocal about these kinds of issues. And then you see various elite factions that are divided among themselves, trying to cultivate all of these different on-the-ground factions as their own constituents.
0: Indeed. Now, I want to talk about the economy because this is something we haven't really touched upon It seems like on any given week, you see some form of bank collapse or some degree of like job cuts going down the U.S. economy. Despite all of that, the media will say that everything is a okay as far as the economy is concerned. However, a lot of the facts on the ground point to a different story. What do you make of the current state of the American economy? Uh, well, that's a
1: pretty complex question. Uh, I think it depends on a number of things. It depends on what sectors of the economy you're talking about, what institutional sectors, what uh, geographical regions, what uh, social sectors. Uh, it's well known, of course, that the Rust Belt area has been completely hollowed out uh, in recent generations. That area of the country is in very, very rapid decline. The pandemic Saw a lot of the small business class really take a hit. At the same time, the pandemic had the effect of producing a record number of billionaires. Uh, you know, there were people uh, at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid that really cleaned up during the pandemic. So it, it really depends on, you know, if, it, when we look at the reports on, on the, in the media, like if we watch Fox Business News or you know when they talk about the, the stock market and what Wall Street is doing for people at that level, the economy is not doing that bad. Economy actually doing pretty good. What is more important to you know to lay people is you know what's going on on the ground, and I think that's a much more serious situation, uh, largely because of the cost of living. You, you see, uh, housing costs in particular have gotten to be outrageous, particularly in large cities. You have so many people that are tied down with student loan debt. You have people that are tied down with medical debt, credit card debt. I mean, every every kind of debt there is, is at a record level. We have a debt driven economy. More and more people are living off of debt. Now you could say, well, that's their fault. They shouldn't live beyond their means or something like that. Or then this course, well, maybe, maybe they have to, but we, we do see that, uh, Certain sectors of the economy are continuing to decline considerably. Certain socioeconomic levels and certain geographical areas and some certain demographic sectors. Uh, yeah, but if you're, you know, if you're a hedge fund, you know, investor or something, then yeah, you're probably doing okay.
0: Oh yeah, de- definitely. Yeah, especially if you're in like the Sun Belt or whatever, because that's like the booming area. You see a lot of that wealth concentration going there nowadays, and even it's like flocking the Northeast to out of it. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that there will be likely a scenario where, similar to Rome, where once like the Western Roman Empire collapsed, all the wealth and political stability went east? And to use the analogy in the U.S., that a lot of the prestige that was concentrated in the northeast and whatever, that's going to just go down south?
1: I don't think it's going to unfold in quite that way. There are a lot of people who say, well, the torch of civilization is being passed from west to east that America and Europe are in decline and that Russia and China are rising, I think that that probably overstates things a bit. Uh, certainly, you know, the Chinese economy is light years ahead of where it was 40 years ago. And certainly Russia has revitalized itself in comparison to where it was, say, during the Yeltsin era. Uh, but the idea that the Eastern powers are on the verge of, you know, eclipsing the West as the you know, dominant centers of power uh, worldwide, I-, I think that's unlikely. Uh, I do think that we are moving more to a multipolar world in the sense that, uh, it's, we're moving to a world that's less like the Cold War where you had these bipolar blocks of nations and more like the world in the pre-World War I era where you had multiple powers with their own spheres of influence and some were greater than others, uh, but they were all significant. Uh, America, for example, the United States is becoming more like what the British empire was over a hundred years ago, where it was the largest of the world powers in terms of reach, but it wasn't the only player on the field. There were plenty of other players. Yeah.
0: Real quick though. um, I meant to clarify, like what I meant um, to say in terms of like the wealth shift from like Northern u.s to like the sunbelt u.s but i still think that this is relevant like that it could be extrapolated to um the geopolitical scale in terms of like wealth transfer but like do you think that in the future like 50 years from now most of the wealth in the u.s and economic activity will be generated in the sunbelt as opposed to in the northeast well i think it depends on what part of the sunbelt uh and what part of the the north
1: I don't really see the Northeastern establishment losing its position of dominance in the U.S. really fast anytime soon. You know, that that sector has been dominant, you know, most of the last, you know, really 400 years, if you want to go back far enough, or 300 years maybe. It seems, if anything, the, the Northeastern establishment has been fairly successful in launching a counterattack Against the Sun Belt over the last 15 years or so. Like, you know, uh, I, when Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, I think that represented the triumph of the Sun Belt for a time. You know, that was a Sun Belt insurgency against the traditional Northeastern ruling class. Uh, and, you know, the, the Ronald Reagan model of conservatism was dominant. For you know, almost 30 years. I mean, we had eight years of Ronald Reagan. We had George H.W. Bush that kind of it came in in his shadow. Even during the Bill Clinton era, the Republicans controlled the uh, Congress most of that time, with uh, under the leadership of someone like Newt Gingrich. And then we, of course, had the George W. Bush administration. And then at the end of the George W. Bush administration, then we started to see. Uh, a shift back to the Northeast. And of course, the Northeast establishment was very much behind Barack Obama. Uh, And that's kind of how it's been ever since then, really. I mean, it's kind of been where this Northeastern establishment has reclaimed its position as a dominant faction of the elite. Uh, And I think that demographics are a part of that. I, I think that demographic trends have been such that they favor that particular sector of the ruling class uh, in many ways, and, and and they've been able to capitalize on that. So I I'd be skeptical as whether there's a transfer of the center of power away from the northeastern establishment to the Sun Belt. I mean, even during the the, the peak of the Reagan era, you know, the, the northeastern establishment was still there in in the shadows. It was uh, you know the the uh, Sun Belt had control of the federal government. But as far as the wider uh, apparatus of international banking and all of that, like I know I you know, I grew up around a lot of you know hardcore conservative, you know, Reaganite type Republicans and they used to complain all the time that Ronald Reagan has had really just become a part of the system and yeah. He really Big just time to Rockefeller and all that. So yeah, so I don't know that the Sun Belt was ever dominant. I think they've always been more or less important to the Northeastern establishment.
0: Yeah, I know tons of people having been involved in like the conservative like lobbying, like right wing space for a time that who ultimately think that Ron Reagan was like sabotage and all that. That's like a really common talking point among them. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Now, just like one like final point before we wrap things up. Because of like the really like unstable nature of the U.S. economy predicated on its like easy money system and just like a massive regulatory state. Do you believe that there will be a widening socioeconomic gap between the elites and the middle class? And will this eventually lead to a wholesale impoverishment of like broad swaths of the American population? Well, it seems to already be happening.
1: On one hand, we've seen the rise of a new middle class in recent times um, that's rooted in things like the high tech, you know, the the tech sector, the tech industry, the digital revolution, as well as the expansion of the professions, the professional class and the public sector and all of that. You know, that was what Barbara Barbara Ironwright called the professional managerial class years ago. And there's been a, a rise of a middle class that's rooted in that. And in fact, they, they tend to be the primary constituents for all of this woke stuff that we see going on now. Uh, but at the same time, the working to middle class, the more traditional working to middle class does seem to be in a state of decline. Uh, you know, we've already talked about the Rust Belt and places like that. But I think just for that sector, the ability to live an upper middle class, middle class lifestyle in terms of standard of living has decrease significantly. You know, there are more and more you see young adults living at home at a much old, later age. Like in, in my case, I know a lot of young adults who are well into their 20s, even their 30s, who still live with their parents. You know, when I was 18, you know, I would have thought somebody that's 27 and lives with their parents is a loser, you know. But now it's a, often an a economic necessity. As housing costs have become more expensive. Uh, you know, the, the fact that service industries are becoming uh one of the dominant sectors of the economy and they typically are not as well paying as uh older industrial jobs i i think that uh that is also a factor and, you know just the fact that getting a job that where you can work full-time and make a living much less support a family is much more difficult uh a lot of places now are going uh towards hiring only part time workers uh like increasingly you have more people that work three part time jobs you know they work twenty hours a week at Walmart. they work twenty hours a week in a convenience store. they work you know twenty hours a week for a landscaping company, so collectively they're working sixty hours a week and and but you know they're not making as much money as a a forty hour a week worker would have would have say a generation ago. And I, I think that the sector of the that I grew up in, the, the economic sector I grew up in, was the post-war American working class, where for the first time in history, you had a working class uh, whose earning of capabilities were good enough that they could live like the upper middle class and with late 20th century technology as well. You know, like I grew up in, in subdivisions and suburbs and exurbs where you had people that were technically working class. They were salary workers. They worked in, in industrial plants and places like that. And yet, uh many of the, uh, most of the people or many of them, they had, you know, they owned a house, you know, I mean, a decent quality house. They owned the land it was on, you know, they owned multiple cars. They went on vacation, Uh you know, they had a lot of household appliances and, you know, all kinds of you know, luxury items, uh, you know, associated with, say, suburban living in a way that I don't think is nearly as possible now uh, for people of that demographic. Even today in, in large cities, you find people who are professional people who have a hard time making rent because rent is so expensive. I mean, think about how you know, if you live in a, if you, let's say if you live in a, a large American city and your salary is $100,000 a year, well, a third of that is gonna go for taxes. And then, you know, probably another half of of, of whatever's left is gonna go for your rent, uh, and maybe more. Uh and then if you've got student loan payments and and you know, things like that, then good luck. So it seems like that there are more and more people that are unable to live a type of middle class lifestyle uh in a way that they would have been able to before. And then you also have people that are in this gig economy. You know, where there tends to be a lot more instability. Uh, you know, a lot of people that I know, they are basically self-employed in multiple different fields. Uh, you know, they're freelancers who, you know, uh, work online and stuff like that. And I, I don't know that there's going to be nearly as much economic stability there. So I, 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 and big picture wise, I see the United States becoming more like what you find in a lot of traditional societies where you still have the super-rich, who are as rich as the rich anywhere, uh, and then you've got a middle class of professional people who are successful, and then you have, you know, most other people are poor or relatively poor. You know, some are very poor, some are, you know, re- you know relatively poor, some are almost poor, and that's, that's how it is most places in most countries, and I think the United States is
0: moving in that direction. Sounds about right, if you ask me. Well... Let's wind this thing down. Again, Keith, thank you for coming on to the show. You've been on the show already several times, but as always, feel free to plug away your content for new listeners to the show so they can follow it. Uh, Well, if you're interested in knowing more about me, you can just Google my name, Keith Preston, and a lot of
1: stuff will come up. Um, The the website where most of my stuff is published is uh, attackthesystem.com uh if you google my name on youtube you can find all kinds of interviews and podcasts i've done over the years uh i my publisher is black house publishing that's based in london and if you go to black house publishing's website you can order my books directly off on on off the website that's probably the cheapest place to get them uh i've noticed when my stuff is sold on on uh, or resold on uh, amazon it tends to be marked up quite a bit so
0: yeah that's you know you, Just go online and you can find me. Great stuff, man. And to my listeners, thank you so much for your generous attention, as always. And with that, El Nino has spoken.